Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell and you're listening to a very special episode 61 of the Popecast. The only podcast about popes that through short histories of each pope of the Roman Catholic Church reminds us that no matter what happens in the church or the world today, that we've been here before. A couple of real quick notes before we get into today's episode. The Popecast is about to have a new daily offering called Today in Papal History, covering notable events in the lives of the popes that happened on that particular date. So out of 266 popes in nearly 2,000 years, there's hardly been a day that hasn't been significant. So it's a, again, it's a short daily newsletter for those of you who can't get enough of the popes. It's, of course, completely free to sign up, and you can do so at popes.substack.com. So that's popes.substack.com. So be sure to get on the list now so you don't miss that first installment. And then secondly, we've had some folks ask if there's an alternative now to support the podcast outside of becoming a Patreon supporter. So some have had objections to Patreon as a platform, uh, understanding that they've they've had some censorship, censorship troubles in the past, and then others have wanted a one-time contribution option. So I'm happy to say that we now have both. For a Patreon subscription alternative, you can actually now find us on our community on Locals at thepopecast.locals.com, L-O-C-A-L-S. And for a one-time option, you can just use Venmo, actually, and hit us up at The Popecast. So that's thepopecast.locals.com for a Patreon alternative or at The Popecast on Venmo. Okay, so this episode, as I said, is a bit unique. It's it's uh, early December, so our Catholic listeners will know that there are two mega-huge feast days celebrating Mary in the first half of this month, the Immaculate Conception on December 8th and Our Lady of Guadalupe on December 12th, so we thought it might be fitting to break from the usual format and talk about the Mother of God under one of those titles and of the men her son put in charge of his church. So this week on the Popecast, it's the Immaculate Conception and the Pope's. The phrase Immaculate Conception is one that's likely familiar to most people, Catholic, Christian, or otherwise. But how many know what it actually is in reference to? Some might think of the Immaculate Reception, that iconic play from the early 1970s where the Pittsburgh Steelers' Franco Harris made an all-but-miraculous catch to help win that particular playoff game. And others, like one notable U.S. congressman, for example, who embarrassed himself on national TV a couple years back while trying to be clever, think that Immaculate Conception is in reference to Jesus's conception. Or maybe most just think of it as that church down the block. That was me, at any rate, growing up in a parish of that name before I learned after college what the phrase immaculate conception really was in reference to. Whatever the case, it's it's safe to bet that a relatively few people know just how recently the immaculate conception, referring to Mary, the mother of God, being preserved from the stain of original sin in the womb of her mother, St. Anne, was made official, so to speak. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, of course, has been around since the earliest days of the Catholic Church. Indeed, one example is Hippolytus, the early church father, writing in the early 200s, who wrote, quote, He, Jesus, was the ark formed of incorruptible wood. For by this is signified that his tabernacle, Mary, was exempt from putridity and corruption, end quote. But never had the Immaculate Conception been defined as a dogma of the Catholic faith, something declared to be unchangeable, without error, and binding on anyone who seeks to be in union with the Catholic Church until 1854, not even 200 years ago. A dogma, again, as defined this time by the Catholic Encyclopedia, is, quote, now understood to be a truth appertaining to faith or morals, revealed by God, 
transmitted from the apostles in the scriptures or by tradition, and proposed by the church for the acceptance of the faithful. So what a dogma is not is something invented out of whole cloth, or even out of partial cloth for that matter. Instead, it's the church, the pope in union with the bishops of the world, proclaiming something that has always been true, but has never officially been declared so. Now, perhaps in another episode we can go into more about uh, dogma in greater detail, but suffice it to say, for the sake of this episode, that one, the church typically only defines a dogma when necessary, and two, most of the time such a need came about as a result of a dispute or a controversy. So think of the early church when, for example, Christianity was divided about the nature of Christ. Everyone knew he was great, but some believed, for example, that he was just a sort of superhuman, while others knew him to be what he was, God incarnate in human flesh, fully human, and yet fully divine. And so the church convened a council, Nicaea in this case, in 325 AD, hashed it all out, and formally condemned the Arian heresy while formally declaring the truth about Christ's natures. But the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, defined by Blessed Pope Pius IX, as mentioned in 1854, didn't really arise for that reason, at least not initially. There was a brief, historically speaking, controversy in the 12th and 13th centuries, but there had been a universal feast of the Immaculate Conception since Pope Sixtus IV in 1476, and an apostolic constitution detailing the doctrine written in the mid-1600s by Pope Alexander VII. So by the mid-1800s, it was universally accepted and believed all over the world. And so Pius IX, after being affirmed by a vast majority of the world's bishops, put it all into infallible writing in the papal bull Ineffabilis Deus, and the Feast of the Immaculate Conception is still celebrated each year on December 8th. Ever since then, there have been many words written about this great proclamation, but I'll limit us here to two excerpts. One from the Venerable Pope Pius XII, who reigned as Pope from 1939 to 1958, and himself solemnly declared the dogma of Mary's bodily assumption into heaven, and one from Pope St. John Paul II, who was a mama's boy if ever there was one. So on the 100th anniversary of the announcement, Pius XII wrote an encyclical entitled Fulgens Corona, and here's an excerpt from that letter. The radiant crown of glory with which the most pure brow of the Virgin Mother was encircled by God seems to us to shine more brilliantly as we recall to mind the day on which, 100 years ago, our predecessor of happy memory, Pius IX, surrounded by a vast retinue of cardinals and bishops, with infallible apostolic authority defined, pronounced, and solemnly sanctioned, quote, that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, at the first moment of her conception, was, by singular grace and privilege of the omnipotent God, in virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved from all stains of original sin, is revealed by God, and therefore to be firmly and resolutely believed by all the faithful, end quote. The entire Catholic world received with joy the pronouncement of the pontiff so long and anxiously awaited. Devotion of the faithful to the Virgin Mother of God was stirred up and increased, and this naturally led to a great improvement in Christian morality. Furthermore, studies were undertaken with new enthusiasm, which gave due prominence to the dignity and sanctity of the Mother of God. Moreover, it seems that the Blessed Virgin Mary herself wished to confirm by some special sign the definition which the vicar of her divine Son on earth had pronounced amidst the applause of the whole church. For indeed, four years had not yet elapsed, when in a French town, at the foot of the Pyrenees, the Virgin Mother, youthful and benign in appearance, clothed in a shining white garment, covered with a white mantle, and girded with a hanging blue cord, showed herself to a simple and innocent girl at the grotto of Massabiel, and to the same girl, earnestly inquiring the name of her, 
with whose vision she was favored, with eyes raised to heaven and sweetly smiling, she replied, I am the Immaculate Conception. This was properly interpreted by the faithful, who from all nations, and almost countless in number, flocked in pious pilgrimage to the Grotto of Lourdes, aroused their faith, enkindled their devotion, and strove to conform their lives to the Christian precept. There also miraculous favors were granted them, which excited the admiration of all, and confirmed that the Catholic religion is the only one given approval by God. In a special manner was its significance grasped by the Roman pontiffs, and when in the space of a few years the devotion of clergy and people had raised there a wonderful church, they enriched it with spiritual favors and generous gifts. When our predecessor decreed in the apostolic letter that this tenet of Christian doctrine was to be firmly and faithfully believed by all the faithful, he was merely carefully conserving and sanctioning with his authority the teaching of the fathers and of the whole church from its earliest days right down through the centuries. In the first place, the foundation of this doctrine is to be found in sacred scripture, where we are taught that God, creator of all things, after the sad fall of Adam, addressed the serpent, the tempter, and corrupter in these words, which not a few fathers, doctors of the church, and many approved interpreters applied to the Virgin Mother of God. I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, from Genesis chapter 3. Now, if at any time the Blessed Mary were destitute of divine grace, even for the briefest moment, because of contamination in her conception by the hereditary stain of sin, there would not have come between her and the serpent that perpetual enmity spoken of from earliest tradition down to the time of the solemn definition of immaculate conception, but rather a certain subjection. Moreover, since the same Holy Virgin is saluted full of grace and blessed among women in Luke chapter 1, by these words, as Catholic tradition has always interpreted, it is plainly indicated that, quote, by this singular and solemn salutation, otherwise never heard of, it is shown that the Mother of God was the abode of all divine graces, adorned with all the charisms of the Holy Spirit, yea, the treasury well-nigh infinite, an abyss inexhaustible of these charisms, so that she was never subjected to the one accursed, end quote, quoting Pope Pius IX. This doctrine, unanimously received in the early church, has been handed down clearly enough by the fathers, who claimed for the Blessed Virgin such titles as lily among thorns, land wholly intact, immaculate, always blessed, free from all contagion of sin, unfading tree, fountain ever clear, the one and only daughter, not of death but of life, offspring not of wrath but of grace, unimpaired and ever unimpaired, holy and stranger to all stain of sin, more comely than comeliness itself, more holy than sanctity, alone holy who, excepting God, is higher than all, by nature more beautiful, more graceful, and more holy than the cherubim and seraphim themselves, and the whole host of angels. If these praises of the Blessed Virgin Mary be given the careful consideration they deserve, who will dare to doubt that she, who is purer than the angels and at all times pure, was at any moment, even for the briefest instant, not free from every stain of sin? Deservedly, therefore, St. Ephraim addresses her divine Son in these words, Really and truly thou and thy mother are alone and entirely beautiful. Neither in thee nor in thy mother is there any stain. From these words it is clearly apparent that there is only one among all holy men and women about whom it can be said that the question of sin does not even arise, and also that she obtained this singular privilege, never granted to anyone else, because she was raised to the dignity of Mother of God. End quote. Powerful stuff for sure. That short snippet is about one quarter of the whole encyclical, so I'd encourage listeners to check out the rest. You can find the free online copy in the link in the show notes. Okay, and here's John Paul. 
At the general audience of Wednesday, June 12th, 1996, the Holy Father continued his catechesis on the Immaculate Conception. Quote, Down the centuries, the conviction that Mary was preserved from every stain of sin, from her conception, so that she is to be called all holy, gradually gained ground in the liturgy and theology. At the start of the 19th century, this development led to a petition drive for a dogmatic definition of the privilege of the Immaculate Conception. Around the middle of the century, with the intention of accepting this request, Pope Pius IX, after consulting the theologians, questions the bishops about the opportuneness and the possibility of such a definition, convoking, as it were, a council in writing. The result was significant. The vast majority of the 604 bishops gave a positive response to the question. After such an extensive consultation, which emphasized my venerable predecessor's concern to express the Church's faith in the definition of the dogma, he set about preparing the document with equal care. The special commission of theologians set up by Pius IX to determine the revealed doctrine assigned the essential role to ecclesial practice, and this criterion influenced the formulation of the dogma, which preferred expressions taken from the Church's lived experience, from the faith and worship of the Christian people to scholastic definitions. Finally, in 1854, with the bull In Effabilis Deus, Pius IX solemnly proclaimed the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Again, we declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which asserts that the Blessed Virgin Mary, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, was preserved free from every stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and, for this reason, must be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. The proclamation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception expresses the essential datum of faith. Pope Alexander VII, in the bull Solicitudo of 1661, spoke of the preservation of Mary's soul, quote, in its creation and infusion into the body, end quote. Pius IX's definition, however, prescinds from all explanations about how the soul is infused into the body and attributes to the person of Mary at the first moment of her conception the fact of her being preserved from every stain of original sin. The freedom, quote, from every stain of original sin, end quote, entails as a positive consequence the total freedom from all sin, as well as the proclamation of Mary's perfect holiness, a doctrine to which the dogmatic definition makes a fundamental contribution. In fact, the negative formulation of the Marian privilege, which resulted from the earlier controversies about original sin that arose in the West, must always be complemented by the positive expression of Mary's holiness, more explicitly stressed in the Eastern tradition. Pius IX's definition refers only to the freedom from original sin, and does not explicitly include the freedom from concupiscence. Nevertheless, Mary's complete preservation from every stain of sin also has, as a consequence, her freedom from concupiscence, a disordered tendency which, according to the Council of Trent, comes from sin and inclines to sin. Granted by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, this preservation from original sin is an absolutely gratuitous divine favor which Mary received at the first moment of her existence. The dogmatic definition does not say that this singular privilege is unique, but lets that be intuited. The affirmation of this uniqueness, however, is explicitly stated in the encyclical Fulgens Corona of 1953 where Pope Pius XII speaks of, quote, the very singular privilege which was never granted to another person, end quote, thus excluding the possibility, maintained by some, but without foundation, of attributing this privilege also to St. Joseph. The Virgin Mother received the singular grace of being immaculately conceived in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, that is, of His universal redeeming action. 
The text of the dogmatic definition does not expressly declare that Mary was redeemed, but the same bull ineffably states elsewhere that she was redeemed in the most sublime way. This is the extraordinary truth. Christ was the redeemer of his mother and carried out his redemptive action in her in the most perfect way, from the first moment of her existence. The Second Vatican Council proclaimed that the Church, quote, admires and exalts in Mary the most excellent fruit of the redemption, end quote. This solemnly proclaimed doctrine is expressly termed a doctrine revealed by God. Pope Pius IX adds that it must be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. Consequently, whomever does not make this doctrine his own, or maintains an opinion contrary to it, is shipwrecked in faith and separates himself from Catholic unity. In proclaiming the truth of this dogma of the Immaculate Conception, my venerable predecessor was conscious of exercising his power of infallible teaching as the universal pastor of the Church, which several years later would be solemnly defined at the First Vatican Council. Thus he put his infallible magisterium into action as a service to the faith of God's people, and it is significant that he did so by defining Mary's privilege. End quote. So there you have it. Two great popes writing about their mom. Very fondly, no less. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us on this very special installment of the Popecast. We hope you learned a thing or two, or at the very least enjoyed the lesser-known quotes from two great 20th century pontiffs. If you'd like to support our work here, you can, of course, do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash thepopecast, or as I mentioned at the beginning, by looking us up on locals.com or on Venmo, both at the Popecast. So as we close today, looking ahead to Christmas, let us ask Mary, the mother of God, that she might help us prepare our hearts for the birth of Jesus, both into the world and into ourselves. Until next time. Mm-hmm.